Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, where we chat to people making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. And here is your host for today, Jeff Griffin. Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, stories of inspiring achievements and community contribution. Every week, we will celebrate an award program category winner or finalist. We hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know that Australia is in good hands. Together with our corporate partners and not-for-profit partners, Awards Australia showcase ordinary people from right across Australia doing extraordinary things. If you enjoy hearing the stories of our inspirational Australians, please subscribe, rate us and review us. We'd really appreciate it. I'm very excited to chat with this week's podcast guest. Hugh Dawson is only 23, but is an advocate and change maker in the multi-million dollar livestock industry. In May, Hugh won the 2021 Coleman's Contracting and Earth Moving Agriculture Award in the NT Young Achiever Awards. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's a a real honour to be on board. I think that we're the seventh most listened to podcast in Australia now. Yeah, I know. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? We're very happy with that. And uh, it's, it's a good thing to be able to make a difference in people's lives and to tell people's stories like yours. So, yeah, we're pretty excited. Good to have you on board. And I have to say, people can't see you or I, for that matter, because this is really only an audio. But you were looking a little bit more dressed up, a bit more fancy <laughs> on that awards night. I do remember you being all doled up. We're not quite in that frame now, so I almost didn't recognise you. But no, just kidding. Mate, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's fair to say that you've really packed a whole lot into your uh, life so far. What initially sparked your interest in the livestock industry? Yeah, so you're right, Jeff. I've, um, I suppose, for to give people a little bit of perspective, um, I've been in the Northern Territory now for this is my sixth year. I grew up. Uh, about an hour south of Adelaide, um, so quite stark in contrast uh, when you consider the country and the the temp- um, yeah I suppose the <laughs> the temperate down there. But um, we had oh, I get in trouble for calling it a hobby farm, but it really you know it was about two hundred and fifty acres I think, and we ran a few cows. So I was interested in primary industries. My dad's a, a winemaker, uh, and so an hour south of Adelaide puts you in McLaren Vale which yeah, is wine, nice. wine, wine region, beautiful wine region. So I think, yeah, there was certainly that, that very early uh, interest in, in the primary industries. But as I, as I got later through, through my schooling, I suppose, um, I took a, a keen interest in, in chemistry, um, in physics and math. So it's probably I had to work a lot harder at the, the latter of the two, um, but they were subjects I enjoyed. I found them extremely rewarding. And... I think, you know, with interest in those subjects, uh, as I went through careers counselling, um, I was probably quite rightly directed towards engineering and project management. I remember that were two that, that popped up um, quite frequently. But as I got, uh, I suppose, towards the end of year 12, um, so as we we're about to start, step out into the world, I'd been I hadn't been accepted at that stage, but I'd applied for electrical engineering at Adelaide University, I think science at Melbourne University. And I just remember at the time it didn't feel like a good fit for me. I wasn't ready to go to university. I knew in my heart that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think you hear, we hear, you know, as a school leader, you hear about people going and doing gap years. So I thought, well, you know, a gap year might be a pretty a good idea. And it was my uncle, uh, Jono, who had, um, done four years on a property called Clear Springs in Holbrook. And that's New South Wales. So I thought, well, if John and I got away with doing four years, you know, I can't get in too much trouble for doing one year. But I wanted to go further away from home. I wanted to go further away from uh, Adelaide. It's a, it's, it, can, it can be quite clicky. It's a little bubble. And I thought, you know, well, the, the Northern Territory is a pretty, it's quite a long way from home. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll set my sights there. And so through a, Quite a long means to get there. Um, Beetaloo Station was one that came up and I put in a, an application and I was successful in my application. 
And uh, and the next thing I was sitting, uh, landed in Darwin. I was sitting in the Darwin Central Hotel and I was thinking, Jesus, what have I got myself into here? <laughs> I, I had no idea, you know, I had no idea about northern agriculture. I really, to be fair, didn't have much of an idea about agriculture, even given my, uh, my early introduction to it. So I sort of fell in the deep end, Jeff. I... Um, I was there and it was sink or swim. That was that was sort of my first involvement with ag, uh, Northern Ag, really. How um, long did it take? You know, you're in Darwin, you arrived in Darwin, you're right, a little different to Southern Adelaide and making wine. Uh, and if we give you your dad's winery or wine making facility a plug, do we get a free bottle of wine or is that um, out of the question? <laughs> I'm sure we can sort something out. (laughs) All right, so you arrive in Darwin, and and I have to say, Beetaloo Station, Beetaloo is a very cool name. No wonder you applied there. It all sounds almost tropical, but you're sitting in Darwin. How far away is Beetaloo Station from Darwin City? Yeah, so it's uh, Beetaloo is between... It's almost smack bang between Darwin and Alice Springs. So if you were to draw a line between Darwin and Alice and, uh, and drop a pin in the middle, we're about 40 kilometres off the Stewart Highway, so that's the driveway. But I didn't have a car. Obviously, I'd flown to Darwin. So I was looking down the barrel of an 11-hour bus ride on, on a Greyhound bus to get to wow. Elliot, which is our nearest uh, little town. It's a, you know, it's a BP service station, really, in a and a uh, a post office so i had an 11 hour bus ride to sit there and reflect uh on what i'd done and and yeah so i, I to to give you a bit more on that beetaloo was a uh, a station uh that was developed um by a man named john dunnicliffe uh and he had the foresight to put put water where country was being um underutilized and it featured on landline so and maybe this is something we can touch on later but um it was when I started doing a little bit of research early on on Beetaloo uh, that I saw this development. I thought, well, if I'm going to spend a year anywhere, you know, I want to be on a plot property that's, um, I suppose, paving the way forwards. It's they're leading the game, um, and I thought that if I can learn as much out of that system as possible, uh, it, it'll stand me in good stead somewhere. I didn't didn't know what was to come, but I thought um, even in those early stages, I saw the opportunities available there on Beetaloo. Fantastic. And I think that puts in perspective how big Northern Territory is. And I should say right up front, I love the Territory. I love Darwin. I love uh, being there for our awards presentations, our judgings. People in Northern Territory are so passionate. They're so committed to each other, to making a difference. And I really love our partner involvements and meeting all of the extraordinary young people that uh, nominated each year and come from all over the territory for the awards nights. It's it's an extreme uh, privilege to see 500 people come from across the territory to get together for the awards night at Mindle Beach Casino Resort. And of course, you were you were there in May recently, and a large part of that was because you're head stockman at Beetaloo Station. And it's part of the Barclay Pastoral Company, I believe. Can you tell us about the station a bit more and what's your role there? Yeah, so Jeff Beetaloo Station um, is essentially a beef breeding operation. Um, so we operate over about 2.6 million acres. So to, to put that in perspective, as I said, my family, like where, where I grew up, so the hobby farm, about two, 250 acres. Uh, Beetaloo is about 10,000 times the size of <laughs> that place at home. Um, so massive, um, massive property and we run about 80,000 head um, of Brahmin cattle and we run a crossbred through them as well. We supply beef uh, predominantly to countries in Southeast Asia uh, through the live export market. Uh, and why that works is our climate's very well suited during the dry season to, to raise calves and we've got you know, wide open spaces where cattle are able to show their normal maternal instinct and go out and raise a calf and, and bring it back in. But we just don't have the capacity um, on these big places in northern Australia to to finish cattle or where, um, you know, you can grow an animal out to the point where it's 
fat enough or have enough condition on it to sell. And so the, the animals that, that we sell to Southeast Asia are able to go into a feedlot and be finished there. And the interesting thing about the live export industry and, and why this is such a nice relationship, I think, is um, a lot of what they're being fed in the Southeast Asian feedlots is human food waste, which is quite quite fantastic. So that's where the cattle go. In terms of my involvement uh, on Beedaloo, I'm the head stockman, uh, so I will organise our team. Uh, we'll get word from our manager what the what the task is for the day or for the week if we're out on our stock camp. So often we we camp, you know, up to a, a, over 100 kilometres from the station. Uh, we'll be out in our swags and and we won't have contact with the with the homestead directly. So we'll get a plan, and then it's up to us to go out and it might be to muster a couple of thousand head of cattle and draft them into um, lines that sort of to organise them, uh, if you would, into cattle that are to be sold, cattle that to, to go out and breed or to be weaned from from the cow. So it's a pretty diverse role. I'm very lucky I uh, have started I started flying when I was uh, in 2019, sorry. So we're able to do a little bit of everything. It's something that I think keeps keeps us on our toes, absolutely. Uh, and I think the, the challenge is available there to, to young people. Uh, working on stations are endless. Uh, <laughs> there's never never sort of one day um, that runs the same as the next. It's always, there's always different trials and tribulations, if you will, but certainly uh, moments of, you know, extremely rewarding um, circumstances as well. I would just say to all of our uh, listeners, bear with us. There's a little bit of a lag there on the internet, a little, but it's a fascinating story. And um, I would say, Hugh, you're a bit like the John Wayne of Australia, being out there and, you know, herding these cattle, bringing them back to the ranch. So I just had this image of John Wayne. I don't even know if you know who John Wayne is. You probably do. Yeah. <laughs> I probably can't ride a horse as well as John Wayne. I'm flat out riding a lawnmower. <laughs> Hugh, is there a science to the type of cattle that you would run in a particular region? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that could tie quite well into how I was speaking of uh, the relationship we have uh, with Northern Australia and Southeast Asia. So because we are in quite a tropical climate, cattle that would usually be fit for domestic consumption, um, such as your European breeds, they're a lot hairier and they're not as susceptible, uh, sorry, they just they're not 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 as suited to the the tropical climate as um, what we call syndicus breeds. So um, breeds that have been developed uh, in Asia. We use a, a bull called a centipole, which is actually bred in the Caribbean. So yeah, these these are animals that are very much suited to, to northern Australia, uh, and that's why they work so well in feedlots in in Southeast Asia, uh, but probably not not so well suited to um, southern Australia. It's a pretty consistent argument that, you know, should live export happen, why can't we just see this, these animals um, being processed in Australia? I think one of the biggest reasons is the fact that, you know, Australians would not, would not enjoy the product that we produce. The, the cattle that we're, we're <clears throat> breeding here and in northern Australia typically render a lot less fat through the meat, and that's something that our our customers in Southeast Asia enjoy. They enjoy being able to, to cook beef that's a lot leaner. They slow cook it, whereas, you know, we enjoy our prime cuts. We'll go out and we'll get a steak and we, we love when it's got, you know, nice fat that's been marbled through that beef. They can't cook with that beef. It falls apart. And so for us, it's very much about producing uh, a product that's going to fit our market in Southeast Asia and, and one that that they'll enjoy um, immensely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I haven't really thought of being a novice, haven't really thought about that. So that's uh, really quite quite interesting and fascinating. And you mentioned learning to fly. I'm presuming you're talking about a helicopter. Yeah, that's right. So we're pretty lucky, and I think it is something that's very unique to Northern Australia. I remember uh, when I started on the station the the concept of using helicopters to muster cattle was mind-blowing 
But I think the more uh, you become uh, immersed in what you're doing and immersed in these uh, these larger properties, you quickly realise that we wouldn't be able to um, do what we do without them. So Beedaloo, we're quite lucky to have uh, a very healthy mix of country. There's a lot of trees, <laughs> a lot of trees. So to muster on, on horses or motorbikes, you know, 90% of the time it's not feasible. Helicopters have meant that we're able to have cattle in areas that are otherwise inaccessible, um, but we're able to utilise that country just as well as uh, a country that's more open and more readily accessible. So as a business, you know, we're able to, to be far more efficient in that sense. Uh, we're making the most of what we've got. John Wayne in the helicopter. Now there's a, um, a <laughs> different vision. And it is, it is hard to uh, conceive in my mind that you need to muster in a helicopter, you know, because of the tyranny of distance. I guess if you're on a horse, you could be gone from the station for weeks on and weeks to um, to do all that you needed to do. So a helicopter does sound logical when you explain it that way. And I, I believe you're also working on a certificate for in agriculture at uh, our wonderfully supportive CDU, who are also a sponsor of the awards. Yeah, so I've actually I actually finished uh, my cert for early this year, Jeff. So I was working through it at uh, the time I was nominated. And uh, isn't that a great thing uh, um, to have available to people working on remote remote cattle stations? So I, I believe if you're 50 kilometres away from the nearest campus, uh, it's fully subsidised, so we don't pay a cent. And I think it's fantastic that you can come, as I did, to do a gap year and still walk away from that year with a qualification. Or if you want to, as I also did, you can keep developing that uh, and keep learning and do a, a certificate. Um, so I started with a certificate three and then progressed into a four. And that's been fantastic just to be able to, I think, you know, keep learning in maybe a different way. I think when you're on the station, you know, you're always learning with your hands, but to be able to keep your mind sharp and to keep um, thinking about, you know, the fundamentals, the why you're doing what you're doing, um, and to then be able to, you know, apply what you've learned from that to, you know, aid your business or or help your team, I think it's great, and I think it's a it's fantastic that um, CDU make that make that available to to us in in the most remote parts of Australia. Absolutely, that's awesome. What's the best thing about being out in the middle of nowhere working on the station? Yeah, <laughs> it's well, I think when we spoke a bit about it before we started recording, Jeff, but. In the in the world that we're living in today, I think we've been extremely lucky that, um, for the most part, we've avoided lockdowns and we've been really, you know, untouched by the pandemic. It's been business as usual, so that's certainly been something that's been extremely attractive about this year. But there are also things that I enjoyed about, um, you know, living remote and working remote previously. I've always been happy in my own company. So I probably wasn't too too worried about being out in the sticks, but um, I think there's a great sense of freedom and adventure that goes with that. And I remember certainly from from getting out of, uh, I was lucky I went to a boarding school in Adelaide, but from getting out of boarding school um, and coming up here and seeing the the space available and just that that feeling of freedom um, again was something that you know I've, I've, I cherish now and I cherish then, and it's something that I think is really unique to to remote Australia, and I think more people, you know, would really benefit from experiencing. I just had a thought. How many spiders and snakes do you see? <laughs> oh, I see, you see, I see a few snakes every now and again, um, but it's not too bad, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't thought about it maybe <laughs> as much as you have been, Jeff. <laughs> Probably not too many from the helicopter. <laughs> No, no, I think I'd be in trouble if I, um, yeah, if I ran into a snake there. Hey, what's the worst thing about being in a remote location? Um, the worst thing? I think there are certainly challenges that come with it. 
communication not and and i think we again talked about the importance of uh you know seeing people face to face i think there is definitely a limited opportunity to do that when you're in remote australia but at the same time i think you know if you're lucky to be working in a place and there are so many places like it uh where you've got a fantastic team around you you don't tend to think about it um and the people that uh this country seems to attract uh, are always very supportive of each other I've found and maybe that's maybe I've been lucky in my own experience but certainly the people you meet are always yeah very very supportive and I don't think I haven't been able to, to nail a worse thing about about living out here and working out here to be honest I try and be as positive as I can but maybe to to get to but you know one challenge more than another I think it it would have to come back to yeah, difficulties in communication. <laughs> We're experiencing our own difficulties in communication on this Zoom call. But um, no, I think it's something that's getting better. I think that, you know, this is something I'm that living out in remote Australia would be the worst. I think it's the best. And I think there's a lot of other people out there that agree with me. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges may be getting people out here to experience that. But certainly I've only, only had, had a positive experience so far. That's awesome. Uh, how many people live on the station at any one time? Yeah, so we've got quite a small team for the the size of the station we operate on. So I think there's only about uh, twelve to twelve to fourteen of us. Uh, there's eleven station crew, and then we have a, a couple of contractors working on um, maintenance. So. Yeah, you, t- you don't see a whole lot of people, but um, but as I said, you know, we, we work in a really great team uh, and we're lucky, I think, to have a, a really fantastic culture where, you know, everyone's there to look at look out for each other and look after each other. So, yeah, very lucky in that sense to, to, to always be surrounded by good people, I think. And I guess the person who does the cooking would be uh, very important. <laughs> What do they say? Never bite the hand that feeds you. Um, no, we actually <laughs> we all we all uh, take turns in cooking at the moment. One of the challenges on stations is we it's hard to keep uh, station cooks. I'm not sure exactly why yet, but um, but yeah, it's pretty essential that everyone's everyone's well nourished at all times. So who uh, whose turn do you not look forward to? No, I didn't do too much trouble if I said that on here. Yeah, probably. probably <laughs> no, no, everyone, uh, everyone's got a few little tricks up their sleeve. It's actually impressive to see what um, what people can can whip up. You're really passionate, also, about low stress handling of livestock. How did that come about? Yeah, so low stress stock handling uh, was something that that B. Lou was doing before I arrived. I think in 2015 they'd gone to a man by the name of Jim Lindsay. And so low-stress stock handling is an interesting one, I think. it's. I think there's there's maybe a misconception, again, that, that low-stress stock handling is, you know, it's very slow and it's very, um, well, it is very quiet, but, but very slow and very inefficient. Why low-stress stock handling really excites me um, is we are working with, with animals that are essentially wild. Uh, we see them once a year, they might get handled for about five minutes. And when you're working with wild animals and it's not their, like we've got to be real, the cattle being in the yards, it's not their natural environment. Um, so that if they're under excessive amounts of stress, they're going to uh, what we what we call bail up. It's where it'll, it'll stop. It won't want to move. It'll want to charge you. That's where, well, that's what I see as being extremely inefficient. So if we can avoid that altogether by working with the animal, if we can work in the, the natural instinct of the animal and play that to our advantage, you know, we've seen some massive improvements in, in the efficiencies of, of how we're, we're processing cattle through the yards. Um, and it's really simple. It's not, it's getting, it's getting right back to basics. So as I said, you know, if, if we get frightened, we'd want to run away. But if we trust, if we trust someone, you know, we're more, more willing to, I suppose, cooperate uh and i think roles reversed you know if a tiger was running at us jeff i'm sure you'd be like me and and run away as fast as you could um but if we say say we'd you know 
had previous experience with that tiger and, and it had been nice to us, we'd be more, more I suppose, inclined to, to stay where we are or to, you know, not behave in an erratic manner. It's the same thing. If we can ensure that these animals trust our movements and, again, we're applying these movements in a way that is not going to induce excessive stress, it's going to make everyone's job easier. It's going to be easier on the cattle, the livestock. It's going to be easier on the humans because you're not running around like a, like a headless chook all day. So it's something I'd, I'd really like to see, you know, rolled out more. I think if people can start to see that it is extremely efficient um, and maybe we start to navigate around some of the misconceptions um, that go with low-stress dog handling, I think we'll see people start start doing that. But it's a game changer. It's been, yeah, as I said, it's massively improved um, the efficiencies that that we experience here on Beedaloo. Um, and I think at the end of the day, anything we can do to make uh, the animal's experience as positive as, as it can be, you know, is, is a fantastic thing. And it's something that I think as an industry we should pride ourselves on, um, that we are looking at how we can make um, handling these animals, you know, as, as, as nice as possible. Well, it is a wonderful thing. It is really important and it's a secondary benefit that it simplifies and eases the process of handling because uh, there'll be a lot of people very happy to hear that you are focused on this low-stress handling to make life for the uh, livestock as, as comfortable as possible. You're also uh, pretty interested in environmental sustainability of rangelands grazing. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, and this is something that I think I've learned, well, I have, I've learned it from um, being here at Beedaloo. Uh, and I mentioned earlier, you know, John Duncliffe was a visionary and that he could see these these huge properties were, you know, they, they weren't running as many um, livestock as they could have been, but only because they weren't using the grass that was, they're available to them so the traditional um i suppose grazing methods of, of many stations was was proving detrimental to to the country itself and it was a it's, it's an incredibly simple idea thought well you know if we put water where there's grass we're going to be able to use more of the grass because the cattle don't have to to walk as far to to get a feed so in doing that you know we're not uh over overgrazing areas around traditional waters we're able to spread our herd out a lot more um, and that means we're leaving a lot of ground cover uh, so in a traditional season after the dry season we want to have what we say 30 percent ground cover left um, so that when when we get the first wet season rains that country will respond straight away there's no scarring uh, there's no runoff every drop of water counts and I think that's so important and I think you know, agriculture right across Australia and indeed, indeed the world is uh, looking at that and that regenerative agriculture model. Filling dams is great, but water in the ground is better. Um, water in the ground is going to grow grass. Grass growing is going to capture carbon um, and sequester that in the ground. There's a massive cycle there that I think we have such an opportunity to, to play a role in in northern Australia. Um, and it's something that I think is extremely exciting going forward, again, across the board in Australian agriculture and agriculture around the world, uh, and to think that, you know, livestock production can play a serious um, role in um, reducing greenhouse emissions and, and, and assisting in, in, in what you could call global cooling. You know, if we can capture more of this carbon and sequester it in the ground where it's usable for, again, growing grass, and producing more livestock it's a it's a fantastic um cycle i think that that we have an opportunity to to really improve simple but very effective and makes good sense you do so much more than just work on the station too though don't you you're a passionate advocate for the australian agricultural industry in the broader sense tell us about your involvement with the northern territory cattlemen's association future leaders program I was really lucky uh, in 2018 to become involved with the, the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association Future Leader Program. 
And that was, for me, probably the first time I saw the opportunities available in Northern Australian agriculture. Um, it went, my, my, I suppose my mentality shifted from this being an experience that was to be a gap year. And I started to see, you know, career opportunities that I'd never seen before. I'd never seen those opportunities um, through that, that careers counselling sessions we'd done at school. So all of a sudden, you know, I was starting to look at, well, maybe, you know, maybe I could actually forge a career in, in Northern Australian uh, agriculture in the cattle industry. And I think that was driven from a lot of exposure to, um, you know, key industry leaders. Uh, we did a tour up to um, Parliament House and got an insight into, you know, how policies are made. Yeah, just having that, having that insight into what happened beyond the farm gate was, was a massive game changer for me. And more than anything, I think, triggered uh, a desire to learn more. I wanted to learn more about, you know, what is this? What is this industry? And if I'm being honest, probably the only, only time I'd seen uh, anything about the, the live export industry was in 2011 when the Four Corners had some pretty, pretty horrible footage. And, and so that was, you know, what I understood the, the live export industry to be. So to, to bring it all together, you know, I've, I've, I've got onto a cattle station. I've seen that, that animal handling is the, the front and centre of what we're doing. I've come to understand that, you know, a productive animal is a healthy animal. Um, and then I'm seeing that there's so much more of the story that's being untold. And that's when I think, you know, from the, the future Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association program, I was able to become involved in uh, the Young Livestock Exporters Network. Then all the, all the pieces were sort of coming together. Um, and I think it was then I became, it became pretty clear in my mind that there was a, a pretty uh, strong career to be had in, in, uh, in the northern cattle industry. So can you tell us a bit more about the Exporters Network and the Livestock Collective that you, that you mentioned you're involved with? So the Young Livestock Exporters Network was an initiative set up to connect the supply chain. So I mentioned, you know, from behind the farm gate, if you like, so on farm, on the station, there was no involvement with the rest of the supply chain. You sort of, we, we loaded cattle on a truck and that was the end of them. And oh, I don't know, as a first year ringer, you don't sort of, you don't think twice about it. But I did want to learn more and I think it's important that even as a first-year ringer, you're learning about what happens to those animals um, after they leave the property. So the Young Livestock Exporters Network connects the supply chain. So I'm really lucky. I sit on the uh, executive committee there as a producer and, and we've got um, exporter supply chain assurance system managers that are also on that committee. So we, we cover from, from paddock to plate, if you like, but the plates in Southeast Asia and so what we want to do there is to provide the, the opportunities for young leaders um, in the industry in whichever, um, I suppose, area of that supply chain to be able to, to develop their careers further and to be able to make significant contributions to the future of the livestock export industry um, so that we can continue to see this trade, you know, occur forever, ideally, um, while that relationship between Australia and those countries in Southeast Asia exists. So that was the, that was, I suppose, the, the live, the Young Live Exporters Network. The Livestock Collective and how I came to be involved with them is an interesting one. So as part of my role with YLAN, we call it the Young Live Exporters Network, I was trying to, to start up a, a workshop for young leaders and something I've always believed in is how we can be better using social media. Like it's everyone has a phone almost glued to the palm of their hand now. And there's, you know, in, in the age of instant information, I think it's vital that we are there. Those of us with boots on the ground, you know, we're seeing, we're experiencing it. We're seeing the, the animal welfare standards and the animal handling standards improving. And we need to be there sharing that. Um, for everyone to see. We need to be transparent. Um, otherwise, there's a, a huge void there for other people to spread misinformation and we've seen that happen already. And so I was trying to, to set up a workshop on how we could better utilise um, social media and then 
we got a tap on the shoulder from this organization called the Livestock Collective. And and I think Wyland were, were the first to be involved in um, the Livestock Leaders Workshop. And it was interesting because we got down to Perth and the Livestock Leaders Workshop was was all that I was trying to, to do and more. And I think, again, just bolstered uh, what I was starting to see, that these opportunities are out there if you go out and grab them with both hands. And so we were really lucky to, to learn um, about multimedia, so be it television, radio, print media, social media, and how we could start to get out there and share that story, that, that really organic um, story and, and transparent story, like I was saying, for everyone to see. And so I think, yeah, with these organisations starting to link together, you know, you've got the, the professional development in Wyland and you've got the, the personal and still professional development in the Livestock Collective and we can start to go out there and make a, a really big difference and that's something that I'm extremely excited about. Uh, and I think we're starting to see, you know, an improved um, public, perspective, um, public per- perception, sorry, <laughs> for, the, for the live export industry especially because it is, it's a red button topic. So, it's yeah, it's critical that I think there's leaders out there and there are I think over 100 livestock leaders out there uh, utilising these skills we've learnt in these livestock leaders workshops um, and sharing the the really positive stories and positive messages coming out of agriculture. Um, and I think that's a, a real credit to um, the directors of the Livestock Collective at the time and Holly Ludeman and uh, John Cunnington, uh, Stephen Bolt, who had the, the foresight to, I suppose, bring, bring young industry leaders together and, and industry leaders, um, you know, alike. And, and make that happen. So seeing some really, really positive things coming out of um, those three organisations. Which is fantastic because the Four Corners report on the ABC did do some damage, I think, for Australia's perception of the cattle industry, particularly the uh, live exporting. And it does sound like there's a, there's a real emphasis and effort to... Uh, educate people as to the reality and how uh, how it really is and do you think we've come a long way in that regard i think it's a it's a work in progress i think more than educate i think we just want to make make the information available to people so they can make their own informed decisions we're not here to try and push an agenda we're not here to try and say this is what we do and this is right and they're wrong we just want to share what we're doing in the most transparent light possible, I think. And, you know, I think that speaks volumes of itself. I know I'm pretty sick of activist movements. I, I think they don't have a shred of integrity and credibility. We need genuine stories. We need genuine, authentic stories from the real people there. And talk about the Four Corners report. You know, media should show both sides. Uh, it should have. You know, what we saw was some pretty horrific images um, and the result of that, you know, was the incidental ban of, of the live export industry, temporary ban. We've, uh, in the uh, inquiry um, last year, we saw that that was a um, decision that was actually illegal. That, that shouldn't have happened. But I think that shows, you know, what public pressure can do again you know in a time where instant information is available to everyone um it's really critical that you know both sides of the story are there and they're available to get back to your question we are making some headway um but i think it'll it'll take time it'll certainly take time i think yeah well you you do know i'm told that uh, if it's on social media it must be true or if it's on the media, that's exactly correct. <laughs> yeah, no, I heard a, I heard a great quote the other day. It was, um, uh, if you don't if you don't listen to the news, you're you're misinformed, and if you do, you're you're ill informed, or something of that nature. But uh, no, I think the the 2011 was a, um, you know, it was it was detrimental to to everyone in the livestock export industry, and I think maybe the government at the time, I can't. You know, comment fully because I wasn't I wasn't here I wasn't involved but directly I was more more a consumer at that stage 
But I don't think anyone realised, you know, that there are so many people that work in this industry and that there are real genuine people. I think maybe in the past we've been guilty of being a faceless industry because it was a red button topic. Um, I think it's really encouraging now to see that people are standing up and we're saying, no, we are proud of what we're doing and we should be proud of what we're doing. And I think as a nation, you know, I think the live export industry is something that we can all be extremely proud of because, you know, out of what was a disaster, we saw the conception of the exporter supply chain assurance system. So the exporter supply chain assurance system, you know, ensures that we're upholding the highest in animal welfare standards uh, and the, there's control through the entire supply chain um, and that we can see, you know, where our animals are going and what they're doing in market. So there's that traceability there. And then there's also the opportunity for independent auditing. So there's no, there's no bias. This is, this is what we're doing. This is entirely transparent. Uh, and I think it shows, you know, pretty incredible resilience um, of our industry and of our people in the industry and it speaks volumes, you know, it says we want to go out there and we want to do better because we believe in what we're doing and we believe that, you know, as a nation, we're leading the way forwards. We're putting pressure on countries that aren't going to uphold the same values in animal welfare and animal standards. Um, and we're seeing countries, you know, really receptive to that and, the, and it's lifting. I think, you know, they say a, a rising tide lifts all ships. Um, Australia as a nation is going out there and we're improving uh, animal welfare standards, animal handling standards globally, which I think is really, really exciting. Um, and again, just a, a, an incredible story um, of resilience from what, what, could, what, was, what was a disaster at the time. Well, I think you've clearly shown your passion and commitment to the, um, to the industry at the awards night through your nomination and the information that was presented to the judging panel. So I think you're a great role model and example for uh, the whole community, but certainly the industry. Are there many opportunities for work in the cattle and livestock industry? Absolutely, Jeff. And we are screaming, I think, in the, uh, in the agriculture sector more broadly, you know, you look at, the opportunities available to go and pick fruit um, or to work on farms or to come up and work in stations, I think maybe as well uh, as a society and a community, not so much community, but certainly in society, I think we have a siloed approach to agriculture. I think we look at ag as just being a farmer standing in a field wearing a straw hat and overalls, holding a pitchfork next to a green tractor. There are so many facets of agriculture, you know, there's a, there's a massive emerging technology um, sector there. There's the live export industry. There's obviously, you know, you've got broadacre cropping and horticulture. There's no end to it. I think it's everywhere we look, but we've got to make a conscious decision how we want to be involved in agriculture. Uh, and I think talking about opportunities to be involved in agriculture, even as a consumer, we can be making decisions, I think, that will benefit um, Australia's agricultural industry. I think, you know, even going and doing your groceries, looking out for something that's Australian made and maybe avoiding something that's produced overseas, where it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one because we're an exporting nation. We sell, we, we produce a lot of food and we export a lot of food. As a nation, we waste a lot of food as well. So it's dumbfounding, I think, that we're bringing food in to Australia and we're not even eating what we're producing ourselves. Maybe I'm getting on a tangent, but that's something I'd really like to see is, you know, Australian consumers supporting our Australian producers. Um, and I think that if we do start to rekindle that connection with Australian agriculture that was so existent in time gone by, um, you know, we're a nation that, that rose off the back of a sheep's back. But I think as time's gone on, we've become more urbanised. We've sort of, we've fallen out of touch with, with the bush and with um, regional and rural Australia. And I think those simple decisions, as I was saying, as a consumer, just thinking about where our food's coming from and, and, and who it is that's producing it, I think can go a really, really long way. I think that that can do wonders and I think will open up opportunities. I think if people start getting 
excited about where their food's coming from and really interested in where the food's coming from, it won't be won't be long before, like me, you know, you'll jump down the rabbit hole and you'll see that there's no ceiling on on what can be achieved in in ag. And I think that's something that yeah, I probably hear it. I get pretty pretty excited about. <laughs> Well, hopefully people through this COVID period have become a little bit more conscious of thinking local, buying local and um, travelling local. Not that we have much choice, but I think we're becoming a little bit more aware. I know we certainly as a family are, which is really, really good thing. And just on a slightly different track, you're also an ambassador for Sober in the Country to raise awareness around mental health. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. So I think to to tie that all together, one of the things I'm really passionate about in, you know, why we're looking at what we're eating and what we're consuming is I believe in a really holistic approach to mental health. And I think that experience shapes uh, perspective. I've come... Uh, I've certainly, you know, run into to instances in, in um, my own experience where I've been really challenged uh, at how I'm going about managing my mental health. Uh, and at the time, you know, I, I don't think anyone goes out to, to try and, you know, run into trouble with how they're feeling and, and how they're coping with, you know, the, the pressure of a workload or stress or whatever. I think there's a lot of things that contribute to it and there's a lot of factors there. So nutrition is something that, that's um, been on my radar for a long time. Sleep is another one. And when you think about them, well, you know, you could almost look at it, well, I'm looking after my physical health. But again, if we have a holistic approach to it, um, they're one and the same. So to circle back, there was probably, I've, I've had two, instances in my life where I've, I've found it really, really hard to, to manage with uh, my mental health. Sort of it's felt like my back's been to the wall. The most frustrating thing at the time is I couldn't really work out why. Um, so the first instance was, was came probably getting towards the end of year 12. The, the pressure of final exams is mounting. I had no bloody idea what I wanted to do after school, but everyone's there asking, you know, what are you going to do when you leave school? What what are you going to do for the rest of your life, your career? And I had no no answer to that question. I was really actively involved in my sport through school, so I was exercising and I was looking after my my physical health and my nutrition and sleeping well. And when our rowing season finished, I sort of thought, well, you know, that can all lapse. I can start going to a few more parties and, I think even, you know, in year 12, you start to experiment with drinking and, and if your friend's doing it, well, you've got to do it. Otherwise, you can't be friends. So I started to see a real social pressure there. There was the idea that you had to drink to have fun um, and you had to drink to fit in. I didn't know it at the time, but that, that played a huge part in that initial degradation to my mental health. And then again, last year, um, I was fortunate that, Someone came to me who I didn't really expect to. Um, while everyone else was stepping on eggshells around me, they said, you've got to pull your head in. It's up to you. And I think it was, you know, it was enough of that shock to pull me out of that first that first um, sort of run in. But then it was the second time that really got me. And I think that was, so this was last year. So I was in my fifth year working up here and I'd loved every minute of it, but, but I was just having more and more challenges at work and I couldn't pinpoint how to fix these challenges. You know, I wasn't sleeping because I was thinking about how I could, you know, how I could possibly resolve this this issue. I don't know, maybe in the in the bush, I think there's a mantra that we work hard and we play hard. Certainly playing hard is something I've done. But I think there's also, you know, that idea that you've earned a beer or you've earned a drink at the end of the tough day. And maybe that's a, that's a that's not even in the industry or in in the territory, I think this is a nation. You know, I need a glass of wine. I need a, a, a beer. We've all said it, and I think we've all you know gone and done it. But what that did for me was, right? I can have an extra beer. Well, why can't I have an extra two beers? Well, maybe I will have an extra three beers. And I was avoiding you know 
I was avoiding a challenge that I could have been able to deal with and I started drinking as a means to, I think, just escape from it um, to the point where I was drinking, you know, it was an unhealthy uh, amount of alcohol and not. And I would never, I would never admit I was a problem drinker. If I was looking at myself now, I'd say at that time, yeah, I was probably a problem drinker. And that really saw that degradation, you know, from something that was manageable, spiral out of control. Um, and I was left again with my back to the wall. And I, again, the most frustrating thing is I couldn't work out why, why I was getting, you know, why I wasn't being as, as productive at work, why I was finding it harder to focus, why all these things were happening. And I was really, really lucky to meet a lady um, called Channel One um, who started a, a charity organisation called Sober in the Country earlier this year. And I remember I was listening to Shanna speak and through my own head, I was thinking of my own experiences and it was just a light bulb moment. Alcohol is a catalyst to a massive, massive, or can be a catalyst to a massive degradation in our mental health that we don't talk about. There's not a warning label on the back of a, a bottle of wine or on the back of a, a, a can of beer that says, you know, this is something that may affect your mental health. If you're dealing with a challenge in your mental health or your mental well-being, think twice about drinking this. You know, reach out to someone that maybe, you know, you just need a hand. And at the time, that might be all you need is just someone to talk to. For me, it was the moment I turned to, to alcohol as a means of, you know, what I thought was self-medicating and what, something I thought was, you know, socially acceptable um, to do, I, it just, I, it was unstoppable until, again, I probably got to the point where I wasn't thinking about it, but I did, I stopped drinking as much because, I don't know, at the time I was at home and I was probably thinking a bit more about what was going on and, and what got me out of that one was that I did open up and I started talking and I now understand the, the importance of speaking when you are experiencing those challenges with your mental health. But certainly now and, and you know, working closely with Shanna, being aware of the negatives that go with alcohol consumption um, has been game-changing and something that, you know, I'm really happy to lever off my own experience um, as someone that, you know, I, I, I'm very conscious of, of my own health, but as someone that I think maybe from the outside looking in, it would appear that I've got a full handle on, you know, what's going on 100% of the time, that alcohol got me unstuck. Uh, and if we're not careful of it, if we're not aware of it, it can get a lot more of us unstuck. And so it was a no-brainer for me to, to jump on board and, and um, to move into a role as an ambassador uh, with Sober in the Country. And I think, you know, the, the really special thing about Sober in the Country and why I think it resonates with so many bush people is that it's not about not drinking. We're not out there to say, hey, you know, you can't have a beer. You can't go and do that. You can't go and, you know, have a massive night and wake up tomorrow morning feeling extremely sorry for yourself. I'd say you'd probably feel better if you didn't, and I know I do uh, feel better for not drinking as much. But we're here to say if you don't want to have a drink, that's fine. That's socially acceptable to say no to a beer. I think it's, again, it comes back to being aware of the fact that, you know, someone in their 20s who just can't pull up, who can't say no to not drinking, you know, they're someone that could be in massive trouble. They're, if they're in your friendship circle, they're someone that you should, should go to and say, mate, is everything all right? What's happening below the surf, behind the, you know, below the surface? If you scratch, if you, if you scratch the surface, I think, and you dig and you, you find, you know, like I was the perfect example of that. I was someone that was putting on a brave face, but, but behind that facade, you know, I was crumbling. I could see it. I wasn't saying that that was happening. I was, drinking a heap to make it look like I was having fun. In, in, in rural Australia, especially where we have a much higher rate of suicide, particularly in young males, I think we're in a position now where we can start to look at how we can 
really help that. And for me, I think it starts with looking at the culture of our alcohol consumption in the bush um, and what we can do to to be better there. Yeah, 100%. I think everything you're saying makes really good sense and there's such value in uh, in your words. And sometimes if we're, if we're not sure, we should just have a chat to someone about our own mental health and our ability to deal with it because it's really hard to deal with it yourself and even to see it, as you said, to understand why is it that I'm feeling this way and just to have a conversation or think about what you're doing, why you're doing it, can uh, give you some some uh, validity in terms of what you should be doing or understanding of maybe what you shouldn't be doing. Everything you said makes total sense, and uh, I think there's a lot in that for all of our listeners. When you uh, were nominated for the award, I mean, you've done so much, and when you were nominated for the awards, the Young Achiever Awards, it must have been a real validation of who you are, what you're doing, and you're thinking about uh, the people that you're helping, the organisations. And I refer, of course, to the Coleman's Contracting and Earth Moving Agriculture Award. It must be a real validation for you. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was extremely humbling, um, especially, you know, in the in the company of the other nominees uh, in Romy Carey and and Amy Kirk, um, who are both in their own right, you know, such incredible uh, individuals. And, you know, Romy was really, you know, and her work that she's done developing the, the, the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association Future Leaders Program, you know, it's people like those that have made the opportunities available for people like me. So, um to be nominated, yeah, it was it was very humbling and a process that I very much enjoyed. Uh, but I think again, you know, just I've I've tried to jump at every opportunity possible during my time in the industry, uh, and I've always believed in the value in making yourself uncomfortable. It would be, the easier option would be to to say no. I think again, to while recognition is is never something. Um, I've sought after, I think it is something that, you know, it really affirms to me that that there are so many opportunities out there um, provided that you just put up your hand and have a go, I think. How has winning the awards in May been able to help promote the industry and, and, and what you do? Yeah, I've, I've thought about this a lot and I think the the biggest thing for me, again, it really just, Said, it, it just said it clear that, you know, agriculture is up there with with every other industry uh, and I think there's so much there to offer and what I think is a misconception, it certainly was um, when I was at school, is that agriculture is a, you know, a dead end of a career or there's nothing in it. If agriculture is being recognised um, across a, a range of other industries, you know, I think it speaks more to the story and I think it's definitely been a platform um, to be able to go out and and say, hey, you know, this is what's achievable um, in the agricultural industry, and indeed across all other industries in Australia, that you can go out and you can have a really successful career in ag, a really enjoyable career in ag, and a really exciting career in ag. Nominations are currently open for this year's Young and Cheaper Awards right across the country. In fact, would you encourage our listeners to nominate someone, and why? Yeah, I'd certainly, certainly encourage um, anyone out there to nominate anyone um, across any industry. I think, you know, sometimes people trying to make a, a change and make a difference, all they need is a little bit of confidence um, to take that next step. And I think for me, certainly, the validation that, you know, the changes I believed in um, were being seen helped me to go out and to share more of my story and and to, you know, hopefully put agriculture uh, on a pedestal that I think shines to everyone. So there's so much more value, I think, uh, than what might be, you know, meets the eye in, in just that simple nomination. It can go a very long way. Fantastic. 
Who? What's something that we might not know about you? <laughs> oh, that's a good one, Jeff. Oh, I used to play the trumpet. I, okay. uh, I was awful at it, so that's um. <laughs> I can't really. I, can't, I, can't. I remember. Uh, I remember. I was in. Um, so I used to play the trumpet. This is at school, so I would have been in year nine. And uh, and mum and dad were always, you know, I think I think you know, always wanted us to try a hand at anything. So I played the trumpet, and as part of playing the trumpet, I was uh, I was in the intermediate concert band. So it was the the worst band in the school, and I couldn't read music particularly well. So I'd sort of listen to the bits that I knew and play to them, but <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't play the bits that I couldn't read. But we had this concert at the end of the year, and mum and dad came up. And they were so proud. They were proud as punch. So they came up to this big concert and all the school bands and, you know, there's a few individual places they were playing. The intermediate concert band rolled in and I thought, I don't know what we were playing, but um, I sat there and I was so nervous that I didn't play a note the whole time. I just sat there pretending to play my trumpet. And uh, <laughs> I saw mum afterwards. Mum was in tears and she, <laughs> she said, we, we are so proud of you. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually, I think I might have told her since then. Maybe this will be something that she didn't even know. What could I put that to? Being a pretty awful musician, Jeff. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's very cool. Well, our <laughs> podcast our producer, Annette, she plays the clarinet. So maybe you could uh, yeah, form a band together. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You'd, you'd need a lot of trumpeters so you could. Uh, make out you're playing. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, play. yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have other words of wisdom or encouragement for our listeners? Yeah, and I think it's, again, it's something I'm finding I'm circling back to uh, more and more frequently when talking to anyone um, because I think it is something that's trans- transferable um, across all industries and across all applications really. Um, in your life but I think any opportunity to to take a step outside your comfort zone is something that's only going to be rewarding in the long run Um, you know I think I said it there before but you know if ever if ever it would be easier to say no to something I say say yes uh, and see where that will take you I think they're great words of wisdom for sure Hugh, where can our listeners connect with you online to find out more about you, what you do, who you're involved with, and also the cattle industry? Yes, I'm fairly active across social media, Jeff. I'm on Instagram. should post some photos about, you know, like I was saying, from from my eyes, if you like, so what's actually happening on the ground and... um, and what we're what, what we're so lucky to to experience out here. So my Instagram handle is HPJ Dawson. And I'm on LinkedIn are probably three of the best places to catch me. And if you would like to learn more about the Young Livestock Exporters Network, if you're uh, an industry professional looking to develop your career, um, Wyland are also across all the socials. Um, if you did a quick Google search, you'd be able to pull up. Um, Wyland, and for anyone, anyone at all, um, I'd really encourage you to jump on and look at the Livestock Collective. So the Livestock Collective are across Instagram, Twitter, they're across all the socials. Uh, they've also got a fantastic website with access to videos, again, covering the entire supply chain, something that, that um, is becoming more and more important to me is, is sober in the country. Uh, if you jump on and look at Sober in the Country, again, a quick Google search will get you to any of the social media platforms. Well, Hugh, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to chat with you. I'm really thankful for your time and uh, I hope you've enjoyed our chat as well. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And, um, and thank you and thank you to the team at Awards Australia for making uh, these opportunities possible, especially, you know, in trying times. Uh, I think it is so important that we do recognise um, people out there looking to to make a real difference. And, you know, hopefully it's not long before um, we're back to face-to-face and, uh, and you know, we're able to see a lot of these um, 
people starting to connect and, and, and drive some real, really positive changes in uh, across Australia. Yeah, thanks, mate. Yeah, we, um, we're very passionate about what we do. We believe so strongly in the power of the people and to acknowledge young people and all community contributors who are making a difference to empower them to do even more is, is uh, our purpose and our privilege. And I hope everybody listening has really enjoyed our chat with Hugh today as much as I have. And until next week, everyone, stay safe, be kind to yourself as well as others, keep inspiring. I hope you enjoyed today's interview as much as I have. We would love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you won't miss an episode. Join us each week as we talk with ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. Did you know that Awards Australia is a family-owned business that proudly makes a difference in the lives of those that make a difference for others? And we thank our corporate and not-for-profit partners for making our award programs possible. Do you know someone that's making a difference? Or maybe your business might like to sponsor an award. Contact us through our Instagram page, inspirational.australians, or head to our website, awardsaustralia.com. It would be great if you could share this episode with your network because who doesn't like a good news story? And please rate and review us. We would really love to hear your thoughts. Until next week, stay safe. And remember, together we make a difference. Thanks for joining us today on the Inspirational Australians podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and have been inspired by ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. So it's goodbye for another week. Remember, together we make a difference.